Track down a Bible if you can and get with me to Luke chapter 19. We're doing a series right now called The Heart of Christ, and we're, we're kind of asking the question, how does Christ actually feel about us? What's his heart? What, is, what does he feel when he thinks about us? So Luke 19, let me read verses 41 through 44. We'll pray, and then we'll get to work. It reads like this. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Let's pray. Lord, as we open your word, we pray that you, by your spirit, would speak. We want to hear your voice loud and clear. Lord, we pray that you would help us to understand your heart for us, that you would use this time, Lord, so that we would know you better and therefore live faithfully to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Two questions. How does Christ actually feel about us? That's the first one that we're going to spend some time on. And the second one is, um, it, it, it has to do with what his desire is for us. So how does Christ actually feel about us? And then what is his desire for us? Well, what we find in the story is we find him looking at the city Jerusalem and responding in an emotional way to it. So as the story unfolds, he is marching toward the capital city, and he is aware of what's going to transpire there. He's fully aware of the fact that he's going there. In fact, he, he describes it in the previous um, chapter, in chapter 18, he took the 12 aside, he told them, we're going to Jerusalem, and everything that's written about the Son of Man is going to be fulfilled he will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. So he knows full well what's going to happen. And then he looks on the city of Jerusalem and he responds with weeping. Verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. He looks at a city full of inhabitants who are resisting him, who are rejecting him, who will execute him. And his response is not to despise them. It's not to treat them with contempt. It's not to say, you're going to get what you deserve. No, his response is an emotional response of weeping. And, and actually, the word there that describes how he wept over it, it's not just that he was kind of sentimental and misty-eyed about it, like, oh, Jerusalem, I just had such amazing plans for you, but you res resisted it. And he's just kind of a little bit upset about, about that. No, no, no. This is a word that basically says he is moved at the deepest level. He is sobbing over the city. In fact, the other place in the New Testament where that word shows up is when Peter recognizes that he denied his Lord and Savior. That Jesus said, Peter, you will deny me. You will disown me. I know you're making all of these bold claims, but you will disown me before the rooster crows. And then the rooster crows after Peter has denied his Lord and Savior multiple times, and it just dawns on him, and he's wrecked by it, and he just sobs. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's looking at a city full of inhabitants who are resisting and rejecting him, and his response is to weep. So when he looks at the brokenness of humanity, 
he feels deeply about it. He's broken over it. Now, this is the consistent testimony of Scripture. If we want to understand the heart of God toward sinners and sufferers, the Bible tells a consistent story start to finish. God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. In fact, in Ezekiel 33, God says to the prophet, say to them, as surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. He says, I don't sit around delighting in destruction. I don't sit around eager to punish. That's not my heart. That's not what I'm about. That's not, that's not what I'm at the deepest level. That's not what I'm looking forward to. That's not, that's not what I'm eager to do. I don't delight in that, but rather that people would turn from their ways and live. The Old Testament tells us that God's heart is broken over those who resist and reject him. The New Testament declares the same thing. In 2 Peter chapter 3, it reads like this, and it's talking about the timetable of the Lord. He declares that he's going to send his son again and return and make all things new. But that delay is, is uh, causing people to wonder, at what point will this thing come true? And Peter's talking about that. He says, the Lord's not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you. Here it is, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The reason why there's a delay is because God's heart is such that he wants people to come to saving faith. The reason for the extended timeline is because he wants more and more and more people to come into saving faith. He does not want anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's why there is such a delay in the return of Christ, and God is not slow in keeping his promise. He's consistent with his heart. He wants people to know him. He wants people to have an experience of saving faith. It's like when we did the fireworks out here just recently, and people showed up very, very early. They, they showed up. In fact, my neighbors, I think, were out here two and a half hours before the fireworks were to go up. And so they're standing there, and they're freezing, and they're, you know, shivering, and just, you know, like, when, when is it we're eager for this thing to happen? But then at the moment when the fireworks were supposed to begin, there was a delay, and they're like, what's going on here? Like, we've been out here for forever. And the reason why was because there were cars all the way down Yellbridge Road of people who were trying to get here. And so we said, we don't just want to start on time because that's what we told everyone. We're going to delay so that more people would have that opportunity of experiencing the show. That's how God is, is at work in this moment. His heart is such that he does not want anyone to perish but he wants people to have that experience of saving faith. He wants everyone to come to repentance. So the Old Testament tells us that God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The New Testament tells us that God is not wanting anyone to perish. And we see it in high definition then in the person and work of Jesus Christ. When he looks at an entire city of people who are resisting and rejecting him, his heart is such that he says, I do not delight in their destruction. I'm not eager for them to be punished on account of their wickedness. My heart at the deepest heart level is one of brokenness over their sin. I wish that they would turn to me and find me to be a savior. I wish that they would open themselves to me. I wish that they would repent and turn and live. So he looks at the city and he weeps over it. He's moved by it. 
So, there is judgment, and it shows up in our passage here. In fact, in verses 43 and 44, it's described. He knows what's coming down the pipe. He knows what's going to happen to them. He's sovereign, and therefore, he's fully aware of the coming catastrophe on that city. In fact, it reads like this. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Judgment is coming. Judgment is imminent. Judgment is certain in this case. There's a finality to their rejection. But what we see here when we look at the entirety of this this paragraph here is that the judgment of God is not something that he is eager to do. In fact, theologians have termed it in this way. They call it the strange work of God. Thomas Goodwin, the Puritan pastor who wrote the original uh, published work called The Heart of Christ, he puts it like this. The disposition of love is free and natural to God. This is who God is. It's his disposition of love toward the undeserving, toward the sinner, is free and natural to him. It is natural for him to show mercy but not so to punish, which is his strange work. But mercy pleases him. Now, judgment is is necessary, obviously. We're dealing with a holy God. We're dealing with unrighteousness. And there is this reality that the Bible consistently presents that sin is something that God will judge. His righteous wrath is against it. It is coming. But, But when we look at the heart of God, we find out that his heart is, is more natu- it's more natural for him to, to be the God of compassion and mercy and grace. And the punishment of sin is his strange work. Jonathan Edwards, uh, another pastor, um, actually who's who maybe most famously known in our culture for his work, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, it was a required reading uh, in English class, and we would, we would read it, and we'd talk about, man, Puritans are so prudish, and they're so grumpy, and, you know, they, they preach hell and brimstone and all these different things. And we read Edward's sermon, and, and that's the conclusion that a lot of us are, are pushed to, to come to. But Edward's, if I remember correctly, after he preached that sermon, he, he had a tremendous regret. And, uh, and, and actually had this desire, I don't want to preach like that, if I can help it. Here's what he says in another place. He says, God has no pleasure in the destruction or calamity of persons or people. He had rather that they should turn and continue in peace. He is well pleased if they forsake their evil ways, that he may not have an occasion to execute his wrath upon them. He is a, good, he is a God who delights in mercy, and judgment is his strange work. Here's what, here's what we need to think through then. Do we believe that mercy and grace and love and compassion are natural to God and his judgment is strange, or do we flip it around entirely? Do we believe that judgment is a necessary thing, but it is not primary, or do we actually invert that and go, you know what, I think that what God is most eager to do is punish wickedness. What's at stake here? What's at stake if we get this wrong, if we do not apprehend the heart of Christ here? If we do not believe that God is the God of mercy and compassion, and instead we believe that he's the God of judgment and he delights in judgment, here's what happens. You will either, well, you'll do these three different things. You'll, You'll hide, you'll lie, and you'll pretend. God is not safe. 
And if he's holy and you recognize yourself not to be holy, you'll hide, you'll lie, and you'll pretend. Think about it in terms of parenting. If my kids believe that what I'm most eager to do is punish them, that what I'm looking for is to catch them up in their wrongdoing and then show them and tell them and yell at them that they're wrong, what are they going to do? They're not going to come to me. When they experience anything going on in their lives, they, they will avoid, they, they will hide, they will lie, they will pretend. And we do the same thing with God. If we believe that he's the God of punishment, and that's ultimately what he's come to do, we cannot be honest with him. We'll hide from him. We won't feel safe around him. We'll, we'll lie. We'll, we'll pretend that we're better than we actually are. We'll, we'll work really, really hard to produce our own righteousness but we will not come to God because we believe that he will not gladly receive us. But God's character, if it really is as I'm describing it here, his heart is for the sinner and the sufferer. If he is the God of grace and mercy and compassion, if he is the God who can love the unlovely, that actually draws us to him. That actually should magnetize us to to him. If his greatest desire is for our good, then we can go to him. Then we can find him to be a God who makes provision for the undeserving. And that's exactly what Romans 2 talks about. It talks about the kindness of God magnetizing us to him. It reads like this. We'll put it up on the screen. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? Here's what makes repentance so doable. God gladly receives you. He's not looking to catch you up in your wrongdoing and punish you for it. He loves you more than you can even imagine. And his kindness then is meant to be this attractive feature about him where when you find yourself sinning, you're not running away from him going, man, I really screwed up here. I better go off and fix it. I better try a lot harder. I better do a lot better. No, you, you, you move toward him because you recognize him to be the God of grace, mercy, and compassion. So a lot is at stake here. We, we want to know God as he truly is. And a lot of churches and a lot of Christians, because we've inverted this, we've created a toxic culture. We create a place where, where hypocrisy reigns supreme because we don't feel like we can be real with each other or with God. We, we can't be honest about our struggling. We can't be honest about our sinfulness. So, so we just fake it. And we tell other people, you better try harder. And it creates this toxic environment that's full of self-righteousness and judgment. And so then we start to look down on other people. You're not trying as hard as I am. You're messing up and I'm going to condemn you. I'm going to speak ill of you. I'm going to look down upon you. So a lot is at stake here. The, The heart of Christ is broken for sinners and strugglers. And we need to, we, we need to embrace that. The second question that we look at here then is, what is his desire for us? So his heart is broken over the condition of humanity, over our experience of resisting him and rejecting him. But we find here as well that he has a desire for us. His heart is for our good. And we we can put it simply like this. His, His desire for us is that we would experience peace. Look at verse 42 again. It says, if you, this is Jesus speaking over the city, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. 
What does Jesus want for Jerusalem? What does he want for Park City? What does he want for me? What does he want for you? He wants you to experience peace. If you only knew what would, what would make for peace, his desire for you is that you would experience this incredible peace. St. Augustine put it like this in his prayer. He said, you, God, have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. We're anxious, we're restless, we're in turmoil, and what God wants for us is, is for us to come to him and to, to find rest for our souls, to find peace, to have peace with God and therefore peace with his creation. And that's the entire reason for which Jesus was sent. In fact, at the very beginning of the book of Luke, there was a prophecy over this child. And it was made by Zechariah, but he prophesied about this, this Messiah, this child who would be king and, and, and the salvation that he would bring and the reality of his light shining in the darkness. And then in verse 79, it says, Here, here's what it's doing. Here's what salvation is offering to us. It, it, it's, it's coming and it's arriving and it's being brought through Jesus Christ and it is to guide our feet into the path of peace. The good news of the gospel is intended to result in peace. We should have peace with God. In fact, Romans puts it like this, Romans 5. We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. Once we were enemies, once we were hostile, once we were alienated from God, but through Christ we've been brought near. We have peace with God. The result of that ought to spill out into all areas of our lives. We ought to be people who are making peace. Blessed are the peacemakers is how the Lord himself puts it. We need to be known for being a place where people can come and, and, and experience rest and experience peace. In fact, Jerusalem, here's, a, here's an ironic part about this story in front of us. The city itself is named peace. Jerusalem, Hebrews chapter 7 tells us, Salem, it's like shalom. It's like this word for peace. And this is supposed to be the, the place where peace is manifest. And Jesus looks at it and he goes, if you only knew, like this is a foreign concept to you. You're named after this reality, but you're not living up to this, what, what God intends for you. If you only knew what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. And the same thing can be said of us today. He looks at us and he says, here's my heart for you. I want you to live up to this calling that you have. The church you are intended to be this habitation of God's peace. People who are at rest with God, who are at peace with God, and are advocates then of peace with humanity, peace with one another. The, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. There's no more us versus them. We should be the people who love well and serve well and, and bring blessing to the world. And as people encounter us in a variety of different ways, they should experience some level of God's peace. So why on earth would anyone reject this invitation? What would possess anybody to, to, to look at God and go, okay, there's this opportunity here for me to experience peace with God and then be an advocate of peace in the world. Why on earth would anyone turn away from that? Why would anyone reject that opportunity to, to be a, a recipient of peace and then an advocate for it? And I came up with three different reasons here. The first is, one reason why we don't embrace the peace that God has for us is because we don't 
really believe his character to be one of love. It's what we've been talking about. It's you don't recognize the heart of Christ. You don't believe it to be true. You believe that he's the God of judgment, and therefore you move away from him, and you, you, you try to avoid him. One reason why you would reject this invitation is simply, it feels too good to be true. How could God love somebody like me? How could God be so incredibly patient with me? One of the reasons why we resist it is because we misunderstand the character of God. A second reason, though, that we resist the work of God is because he doesn't meet our expectations. We think we know what God should be doing, and we've kind of got that script written out, and he's not playing according to our rules. He's not doing what we want him to do. He's not behaving the way that we would expect, and therefore it's frustrating, and we turn away from him. In fact, Jesus perceived that in Luke chapter 19. He's heading to the capital city, and he realizes that what most everyone wants, he's not willing to give them. What everyone wants is for him to be this Messiah who comes and sets up shop and makes them this, uh, this impressive nation state again and makes them formidable and protects them and beats down their enemies and does all this different stuff and, and sets up shop and, and, you know, happily ever after for the Israelites, right? That's what they want. But he recognizes that and he begins to tell parables in that direction. Look, that's not what I'm coming to do right now. In fact, Luke 19, earlier on, it reads like this. He was near Jerusalem, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. And so he began to teach them, no, no, no. It's not just going to happen all at once. I'm not just going to come, get on my throne, beat everyone down, and then you, you guys are the heroes, you're the good guys, and all the blessing comes in your direction. That's not how it's going to play out. See, he's not meeting their expectations, and it's frustrating to them. They want him to come, and they're the good guys, so he needs to beat down everyone who's oppressive right now, the Romans, the people who are, you know, harassing them, and get them back to a place of greatness and formidability. And he says, look, I'm not, I'm not super interested in that plan. I've got a different plan, a much better plan. But we resist the Lord because he doesn't meet our expectations. Here's a third reason. We, we resist the Lord because what he is doing actually offends us. That's a third reason that shows up, and it runs throughout the entirety of the message of Luke. We, we reject the Lord because the mission of God, frankly, it doesn't square with what we think it should be. He wants to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. We want salvation for us. He wants to bring salvation to people who are unlike us, to people who think different than us, who act different than us. And we say, no, 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 no. That's not okay with me. I don't like that you like people like that. So we reject the Lord because his mission is too beautiful for us. Let me show it to you. It starts very early on in Luke. In fact, at the inauguration of the public ministry of the Lord, he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted there and he comes out successful. And then he goes to what we would consider a church service and he's sitting there and there's a moment where he has an opportunity to read scripture. They hand him the book of Isaiah and he opens it up and he finds a certain place in there. And he says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he sits down and everyone's like, who is this dude? 
What is he talking about? And he says, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Your prophet Isaiah, this expectation, he's saying, it's about me. And they're like, this dude, we're on his side. We like this. Tell us more. Tell us more. And then he begins to explain. They have a couple follow-up questions, and they're like, wait a minute. Don't we kind of know you? Aren't you from here? You can't be the Messiah. And he begins to tell them two different historical events that happened with the Israelites. The first is a widow in Zarephath, a foreigner, and God's favor came to her, an outsider, somebody unlike the rest of them. And he tells that story. And then he follows it up with another story. He tells the, the story of Naaman the Syrian and the healing of his leprosy, another foreigner who's receiving the grace of God. And they, they connect the dots and they go, we see what you're saying. This isn't about us. And in fact, if we're stubborn, we will, we reject, we will resist the grace of God. And so here's what they do. They drag him out to the brow of the city, to, to a cliff, and they say, we're going to throw you off of here. Luke has introduced a theme then. God has introduced a theme here where people reject God because he is far too gracious. He likes people who aren't like us. And we hate that. And one of the ways that we can tell whether or not we are close to the heart of God is how do we talk about people who are unlike us? And if we can look at them and say, my heart breaks for them, my heart is moved toward them, my heart is compelled to try to love them and serve them, then we're, we're somewhere near the heart of Christ. But if we're calling names, if we're, if we're slandering people, if, if we're looking at somebody who's unlike us and we go, there's just a bunch of, and we just fill it in with all kinds of colorful language, that's not like God. We resist God because he loves people that we have a hard time loving. And that's why people over and over again turn away from God. God has a global mission, and it's not just about you and me. And that offends us. The way of peace is the way of the cross. Jesus was willing to suffer and die for his enemies. And he invites us to do the same. He wants us to move toward people in love who are different from us. And honestly, if we're dealing with the real Jesus, then we're going to be surprised and we're going to be offended. If that's never happening, when you, when you think about the Lord, I, I wonder if you're really thinking about Jesus as he truly is. He is far more radical than you or I. He's far more gracious, far more loving and he offends and upsets us. He, he disrupts us. His heart is for people of all nations. Now, he's rejected then because he's not meeting expectations and his mission is too grand. Michael Wilcock, in his little commentary, he, he puts it like this. He, he's saying one of the reasons why we struggle with this so badly is, is because we have this political vision for what we think God should be doing. Michael Wilcock puts it like this. He, Jesus, turns our attention away from the political transformation of society to the spiritual transformation of the soul, which must precede it. The kingdom must first come to the human heart. He conditions us to think in terms not of immediate success and quick returns, but of delay and protracted struggle. The kingdom must grow throughout the king's extended absence. You see, one of the reasons why we misstep in, in this arena is because we believe that what God is going to do is some political salvation, just like the Israelites did in Jerusalem. 
We want the Lord to come and we want him to establish his leadership and his rule and his reign through all of the political ideas that we already have. And and we want him to rubber stamp our plans. And we're reminded here in this passage and in many others that Jesus isn't too interested in that. That's not his plan. He has come to bring salvation to the ends of the earth. He has come to love the unlovely like me and also to love people who are very unlike me. And even though that's offensive, that's what he's up to, and I want to be on his side. And so as I've been thinking about it this week, I really want our church to be that kind of church, to embrace the mission of God, as disruptive as that may be. I I want for us to be the kind of place where, where we are welcoming to the outsider, to people who don't look like us, to people who don't think exactly like us, people who could come in here and we could say they are very different from us. But the Lord has come to save those who are far from him. His heart is for those who are far from him. So we need to be a people who come to know Christ as gentle, gentle, lowly, and approachable. As one whose heart breaks over people who are resisting him. And then we need to be a people who are representatives of this way of peace. People should be able to come into our community of faith and say, this is a place where the lordship of Christ is on clear display. And the way that we know it is because when we come into contact with this community, we experience the peace of God. Let's pray. Lord, would you please help us? Help us to embrace your radical way of salvation, that you love the unlovely. Help us to believe that you can look at us in all of our mess and you're not, you're not repulsed by that. You love us. Your heart breaks for us. Your heart is moved toward us. And then, Lord, help us to recognize that you are offering us peace. Let us be a community that is experiencing that personally and let us offer that to all who would come into contact with us. We pray in your name. Amen. Amen.